morning. It's good to see all of you here. My name is Wayne Park, and it's my privilege to serve as a lead pastor. Uh, more and more I think about it. I don't like that phrase, lead pastor. Um, I like to think of myself more as the one that gets to encourage you Sunday after Sunday, and to be maybe the encouragement pastor. I like that title better, because I understand that in your busy work lives, Monday to Friday, sometimes what you need to hear is a word of encouragement. And what you need is just to take a deep breath, as I saw one of you doing just now, and you're ready to just hear from the Lord, and I hope that you do. And so I'd like to invite you, actually before we pray, really quick announcement is um, for the Astros game this coming Friday, um, this is a big part of our church life. We're not just about Sundays, we do a lot of stuff throughout the year, we do a lot of stuff throughout the week. And this coming Friday, we've been awarded free Astros tickets, and we have 30. Here's the thing, we have room for more. Um, there are some people that are willing to give up their tickets and uh, don't, feel like, don't feel like, you know, if I go, somebody's giving up their tickets. There's a bunch of people that went to the last game and we filled that one out. So if you are even remotely interested in going to the game this coming Friday, I really want you to just at least have a conversation with Sarah. Could you raise your hand really high? Everybody look at Sarah. And just think about it and say, maybe I'd be willing to go to the game this coming Friday because we do have extra tickets available or we, have, we can make some room. And it's really um, an important part of our fellowship. If you look in your bulletin, you're going to find our notes for this Sunday. And on the top of our notes, there's a little prayer that I'd like to start off with for today. Maybe you know it by heart. And if not, look at this sheet. And if we could say this together with a deep breath. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and courage to change the things I can. We say that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so we're continuing our series. We've started a series a couple of weeks back, and for the next uh, fall season, for this fall season, we're talking about work. We're talking about your lives Monday to Friday, tomorrow morning. Sorry to remind you, you're going back to work. Um, and talking about the different aspects of work. We're also talking to parents. I know maybe um, if you're a stay-at-home mom, you might be struggling with this. How does this speak to me? That's coming. And we're trying to talk um, about life, uh, the mundane aspect of life, but also to see the spiritual in all of that. You see, I think one of the biggest misunderstandings that Christians have is that work is a punishment. That work is something that resulted ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. And I taught a couple of weeks back about how work is something that didn't start the minute Adam and Eve took the bite out of the fruit. Work actually started before that, ever since the first verse in the entire Bible, when God was creating. This is a form of work. And therefore, work is not something that's intrinsically bad. Work is a good thing. And I know that how can the pastor, it's easy for him to say that because he just stays at home Monday to Friday, and actually it's not entirely true. Um, but to talk about work, I think, is something that we want to convey the sense that it's not something we do 
just as a punishment, but that it is a gift. It is something that we do uh, as, as, uh, as co-creators with God. Work is a good thing. Work is a good thing. And so on that note, I'd like to start off with this video talking about work. And if, Frank, you could pull up that video, I think this is like the perfect um, metaphor for the struggle that we oftentimes have when it comes to work. Mr. Huff would like to talk to you in his office. Hmm. Now? Now. Sit down, Bob. I'm not happy, Bob. Not happy. Ask me why. Okay. Why? Why what? Be specific, Bob. Why are you unhappy? Your customers make me unhappy. What? You've gotten complaints? Complaints? I can handle. What I can't handle is your customers' inexplicable knowledge of InsuraCare's inner workings. They're experts. Experts, Bob! Exploiting every loophole, dodging every obstacle. They're penetrating the bureaucracy! Did I do something illegal? No. Are you saying we shouldn't help our customers? The law requires that I answer no. We're supposed to help people. We're supposed to help our people! Starting with our stockholders, Bob. Who's helping them out, huh? You know, Bob, a company... Is like an enormous clock. Is like an enormous clock. Yes, precisely. It only works if all the little cogs mesh together. Now, a clock needs to be cleaned, well lubricated, and wound tight. The best clocks have jewel movements, cogs that fit, that cooperate by design. <laughs> I'm being metaphorical, Bob. You know what I mean by cooperative cogs? Bob? Bob? Look at me when I'm talking to you, Par! That man out there, he needs help. Do not change the subject, Bob. We're discussing your attitude. He is getting mugged. Well, let's hope we don't cover him. I'll be right back. Stop right now, or you're fired! the door. Get over here now. I'm not happy, Bob. Not happy. He got away. Good thing, too. <laughs> you were this close to losing your... So you know uh, that video probably, um, pretty sure everybody does, that's from the movie Incredibles where Bob is actually an undercover superhero. And maybe you relate to this where on Sunday you get inspired, you find some strength, you're ready to go back to school or back to work or back to life. You're a superhero and then life happens and in the midst of life, you have to wrestle through the mundane, through some of these, you have to wrestle with the boss, you have to wrestle with some of these aspects. Somebody recently asked me a question that I thought really got to the heart of the matter. And he said, Pastor, I'm hearing you talk about work, and I can see exactly what you're saying, that work is something that is good. 
intrinsically good. By God's design, it's redeemable. I can see how maybe medicine is redeemable, how medicine is intrinsically good because you're helping people. Maybe if you're a teacher, there's a sense that you're helping uh, our children, the future. If you're a lawyer, you're involved in justice. Even if you're an engineer, you're building something. But how do I, was this question, how, do, how, how does my workplace possibly have any good or intrinsic significance when our entire purpose is to keep our shareholders happy, as he said in the video, where the corporate bureaucracy exists just to facilitate the corporate bureaucracy? How is there anything redeemable about that? How is that intrinsically good? And that question is such a piercing question, and I didn't have an answer to that. This series is wrestling with some of these questions. What intrinsic good and value is there to my work? And to that end, today I'd like to talk through Mark chapter 12 and 13. And I'm going to read passages, and it's not immediately going to strike you as about work. But there is something there that I'd like to um, talk about, in particular how we view our work and how we approach our work from a prophetic angle. And I'm going to talk along three headings today, three fill-in-the-blanks, three steps on how we might work more prophetically. Three steps on how we can work more prophetically. So let's begin with Mark chapter 12, verse 41. We're not going to begin at the beginning of this section, but in the middle. Mark chapter 12, verse 41, if you could turn your attention to the passage. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, and he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned and all she had to live on. Oftentimes, this passage has been used to talk about giving and to talk about generosity, maybe even tithing. My intent today is not to talk about giving, although I've spoken about it in the past. When you see these words, it almost seems like Jesus' words are dripping with admiration. Look at the devotion of the widow, this wonderful poor widow who gives of her life essence, the word that's used there. She gives everything she had to live on. That word in the Greek is bios. So she's not giving out of an abundance or an overflow. That's a different Greek word, zoe. But the word bios talks about somebody that's giving until it hurts. She's giving from her grocery money. She's giving from her last savings. She's giving to the extent where it hurts. That's the way we should give, yes? No? Actually, what I'd like to present today is that this passage in Scripture is not about giving at all. It is not about generosity. At first blush, it appears that way. But we always need to look at text carefully, deeply, and within its context. And the first way and the first fill-in-the-blank of how we might work more prophetically is to look and contemplate. Look and contemplate. Friends, I'd like to teach about contemplation this morning. There's a phrase by Denise Levertov. 
who was a Catholic poet, and she says it like this, and it's in your bulletins. To contemplate, to contemplate comes from the word templum, a temple, a place, a space for observation that's marked out by the augur. An augur was a Roman seer, a Roman priest, somebody that would sanctify a space and say, this is holy space for reflection upon your work. One of my spaces for reflection is at Texas Children's Hospital. There at Texas Children's Hospital where I frequent enough to have my own, uh, I have my own little chip that's prepaid so that I can make unlimited visits there or up to a certain amount thanks to a special person in this congregation. And every time I go to Texas Children's, it's like I know the place now pretty well. I know where to park. You park in garage, I think it's garage three, and then you walk along this long hallway to get to the, to the different parts. And along that hallway, there's a chapel, a little children's chapel, that whenever I can, I stop by there. That is my place marked out by the auger. That is my place for contemplation. And I'll pause and I'll sit down in that chapel maybe shed a tear or two, think about the person I'm about to visit, think about the nature of my work. For me, that's a holy space. It's a little space for contemplation. Friends, I don't think that there is a person alive who is too busy to contemplate. Contemplate? Who has time for that? Contemplate? I don't have time to think about what I do. I'm so busy doing what I do. I'm sure you have a coffee break. I'm sure you have a commute. And in that time, don't just think about work, but contemplate it before a God. If I might complete Denise Levertov's words, to contemplate comes from temp templum, a temple, a place, a space for observation marked out by the augur. It means not simply to observe or to regard, but to do these things in the presence of a God. If you have five minutes over a coffee break, you can contemplate your work intentionally in the presence of a God. Where in your space, in your studies, in your parenting, you have a moment to breathe deeply and say, what does this mean, God? And to invite God into the messiness and the mundane Mundanity. Is that even a word? I, I keep saying, I keep trying to say mundanity. I'm, I'm making that up. It's in Webster's Dictionary now. In your mundanity, you have a moment to pause and to reflect, what does this mean? Because if we don't reflect on what we do, we're nothing better than animals. To reflect on what we do and to contemplate. And you see, what Jesus does in this passage, I think together with his disciples, they sit down and they observe this widow. And Jesus says, look at that, she's so generous. I actually don't think that's what he's saying. Because when you contemplate, you have to think about the context. And what Jesus says here, if you think it's about generosity, it's completely out of context. A sermon on generosity has nothing to do with chapters 11, 12, and 13 in Mark. When you look at the surrounding context of life, the text which is your life, you can see that Jesus is talking about something entirely different. He's not talking about the generosity of the widow, but for the last two chapters, or for these three chapters, he is talking about the problem of religion, and in particular, the religious system. 
What he's saying is there is something wrong that this poor widow who should be helped by the church is instead being put in a place of continual dependence. I don't even know if that's the right word. She's actually being exploited by the church. Now, I know that as a pastor, I'm speaking out of two sides of my mouth. You know, it almost sounds like we're critiquing, I'm critiquing the priest. I'm critiquing religion and who's, who embodies the priest and the religion more than myself. It's like, how can I talk about giving in this manner? There was once a woman who was giving $4 to the church once a month, every month, faithfully. And, you know, they counted the money and they looked at that and they said, well, it's not a lot, until they found out that she was making $40 a month. I guess this was a long time ago. And they approached her and they said, you know, good lady, you, you don't have to do this. We don't want to deprive you of your, you know, of your $4. So here's your $4 back. And she looked them in the eye and she said, you are taking away my very last ounce of dignity. So mind you, I'm not saying that, you know, we don't have to give or I'm not, I'm not slamming the notion of giving. Follow closely with what I'm talking about here Jesus is critiquing a deliberate system of exploitation, of arrogance, and greed. As he looks and contemplates at his work and at the system, what he's seeing is something wrong, wrong, wrong. Friends, the first step is look and contemplate. Is there something that you feel, that, that you see going on, and in your conscience it's like a little, it's like a, it's like a splinter, Something's wrong, wrong, wrong. You look and you contemplate on it. And that brings us to the next passage, Mark chapter 12, verse 38. This is the context. Actually, this is the verse before the verse we just read. And listen to what Jesus says in chapter 12, verse 38 of Mark. In Jesus' teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Okay, so what is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about pride. He's talking about arrogance, about a sense of entitlement. This is what he's poking at. This is what he's pressing his finger into. And listen to this. They like chief seats in the synagogues, places of honor at banquets. Verse 40. The scribes who devour widows' houses. Do you catch that? Jesus is talking about the corruption of the religious system that is instead of helping people, it's exploiting them. And as a result, lo and behold, who are they contemplating on after that? A widow. In other words, I don't think that this passage is an appraisal of the generosity of the widow this passage is Jesus being his good old subversive self. This is Jesus looking at the system and saying, fight the power. Because in his own way, Jesus just was too revolutionary. He was too cantankerous. You couldn't put him in a box. If Jesus were here, he'd probably challenge us left and right. You see, what we've done, friends, is we didn't just contemplate this one passage of Scripture, but we did the second thing, the second fill in the blank. We looked upstream. Look and contemplate. But the longer you work, just as we did with this passage, you need to begin to look upstream 
why is this the way it is? On my job, why are these things happening? Why is there this systemic breakdown? Why am I constantly yelling at my kids as I parent them, look upstream, what's going on in my life? At school, why, is, why are we learning things this way? What pedagogical approach is being used here? Look upstream. Just like we looked upstream, we looked at the previous passage, it's important for us, number one, to contemplate. Friends, contemplate. It's a form of Sabbath. Contemplate what you do. It's a form of Sabbath. But secondly, look upstream. I think the most typical story I could think of of somebody who looked upstream is Erin Brockovich. If you know that story, uh, if you've seen the movie from like the dinosaur times starring, what's her name, Julia Roberts, right? And it's a story of Erin Brockovich who was, as I understand, a legal clerk with no formal education in law, no formal education in law, but she knew that there was something wrong with the town she lived in. She contemplated this, and as she did her research, I, it's kind of corny, but she looked literally upstream, and she discovered that the Pacific Gas and Electric Company of California had contaminated the drinking water of the town that she lived in with hexavalent chromium, which is a carcinogen. And so she embarked on a campaign to expose these things and was successful. Where is there hexavalent chromium present in your lives, friends? What is the carcinogen agent that you see working itself out in your corporation or working itself out in your temper tantrums or working itself out in your own life? What is the carcinogen and where are you going to have to look upstream in order to address it? Just like Bob, the superhero, encountered the crazy loopholes and the crazy system of InsuraCare's inner workings. What did he say? He said there, I, I even wrote this down because it was so good. He said, they're, they're, they're penetrating the bureaucracy. So friends, as we, look up, as we look and contemplate, as we secondly look upstream, there's more. There's a third step. And that third and last step when it comes to work is look for the signs. Look for the signs. You know, I don't consider myself a superstitious man. I consider myself a very spiritual man. I don't say that with pride. I say that because I am that needy. In order to get through the day, I have to pray constantly. In order to live life and live a good, clean life, there are a lot of things I have to give up. In order to be upright, to be a good father, a good husband, a good pastor, I have to make sure that I live with integrity and therefore, it behooves me to live a life where I'm constantly depending on God. Bobby, you sang the right song this morning. I need you. Every hour I need you. I'm living not one day at a time, but sometimes I feel like one hour at a time. And so I can feel it. And this week I've had some, some, some things weigh on my spirit heavily. And even in my own family, we've had some things that have made... 
So as a pastor, as your pastor, I try to lead with my weakness. You know, we've had some challenges and we've struggled a little bit and something happened on Friday. My wife was pulling up in the driveway and as she pulled up in the driveway, she saw a little beige brown thing kind of curled up in front of my garage, curled like that. And she called me out and I came out and I saw with my own eyes a snake. And it wasn't a garden snake, it was one, I'm pretty sure it was poisonous. It, I, I'm guessing copperhead or something. But by its brown color, we looked it up, and it was a snake. I'm not superstitious, but for me, that's a sign. For me, that means something. For me, I'm almost like, no wonder. So I'm not just experiencing these things in my head. There's something going on. There is spiritual warfare. I'm not trying to spook you, or I'm not trying to, you know, get you to be superstitious. But I am here to tell you there is a spiritual dimension, folks. There is a spiritual dimension. Look for the signs. Look for the signs. There's a reason why things happen. And in the last six years of my life, I've seen it more than ever, things come true. My words don't fall to the ground. I've seen things happen sometimes even predicting them in a strange way, look for the signs. That's not to say, ooh, we're gurus or we have a prophetic gifting here. I mean, today's sermon is about prophecy, right, or having a prophetic insight. What we're talking about is being spiritually in tune so that you can see this is coming. This is coming. This is obviously going to happen to my company. This is obviously going to happen to my place of study or to my family. There are signs, and I cannot ignore them. It's God screaming at me. It's almost like the thin spaces in heaven and earth where God says, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. Mark chapter 13, as they're going out of the temple, one of the disciples said to Jesus, teacher, Look at what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Look at this temple. Isn't it glorious? This great edifice of religion, this church that we, our Jewish people, have built. And Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Our company is going down the tubes. Our family is in crisis. My studies are in a dangerous place. Look for the signs. And I'm going to fast forward to verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Everybody likes to talk about the abomination of desolation, right? That's the fun part. But what exactly is Jesus saying here? You know what he's saying? I'll tell you what he's saying. It's that third and last fill in the blank. Look for the signs. Look for the signs. Look for the signs. A lot of us interpret the abomination of desolation having to do with something that's going to happen in the end times. And so we look for the signs. Friends, I'd like to give you an alternative interpretation on the abomination of desolation that many times us Christians don't hear. The abomination of desolation is quite literally an abomination 
somebody that is beastly, somebody that's filthy, unclean, that will desolate, that will make the temple and the holy grounds of Jerusalem impure. Now, technically, we are ex- as much as we are expecting an abomination of desolation into the future, technically, in Jesus' time, listen carefully to this, that already happened. Many scholars believe that the abomination of desolation was someone who existed during Jesus' time. There are several options. One is Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek ruler who would literally step into the holy temple, into the holy of holies, and what would he do? Set up a statue of Zeus. If that's not a desolation, friends, I don't know what is. Another time it happened was when the filthy Romans, and I don't mean that to be derogatory, but from the religious sense, they were unclean, ritually impure. And they would, they, re- they would do really abominations in the temple of Jerusalem. In other words, I think it's my opinion, along with a majority of Christian scholarship, we just don't hear this. A majority of Christian scholarship believes that the abomination of desolation is not something that's coming in our future. The abomination of desolation already came in Jesus' time. And he was saying, look out, it's too late. This great temple that all of us love and worship, this edifice of religion, after all, these whole three chapters, Jesus is talking about religion. Our edifice of religion is going to come crumbling down. He's telling them, look for the signs. It's happening. It is happening. The abomination of desolation has already come or will be coming shortly. And friends, I can prove it. You don't need to look at Christian historians. You can look up Eusebius. You can look up Josephus, non-Christian historians. You can look at Roman sources in the year A.D. 70, just a short 40 years after Jesus said this. Roman boots would come trampling into the holy grounds, into the holy city, into the holy of holies, in the temple, desecrating it, and in the end, not one stone would be left standing on the other. The temple would be completely destroyed. Friends, do you see what I'm saying? Jesus says, you will do greater works. You will do greater things than me. If you're predicting something, look for the signs. If you think that there's something unethical going on at work, look for the signs. If you're seeing something breaking down in your family, look for the signs. If you're having a splinter piercing your conscience, look for the signs. Jesus seems so otherworldly, but when it comes to this prophecy, I think he was very near and present and not very far away. His words would come true. In fact, I just want to say this one last thing. The abomination of desolation. He talks about this in another parallel passage in Luke 21. When you, he says this, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. And those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And historically, that's exactly what happened. Once Rome started entering Jerusalem because of this forewarning by Jesus, the church, I'm sorry, not, uh, the church in Jerusalem, once the Roman armies and the boots started entering into the city, the church in Jerusalem, because of this forewarning, 
they booked it out on, they booked it out of there, and they replanted, they replanted in a town called Pella, according to the historian Eusebius. In other words, they saw the signs, and they made a courageous decision. They saw the signs, and they made a courageous decision. Friends, how many of you need some courage today? How many of you need some courage? I heard a couple of great quotes on courage this week that I'd like to share with you in closing. We started out with one, grant me the courage to change the things that I can. I like this one by Peter Drucker. Whenever you <laughs> Peter Drucker, the management guru, whenever you see a successful business, someone once made a courageous decision. Is that in your notes? Yeah. Someone once made a courageous decision. Here's another good one. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to manage your fear. That comes from John Perkis, uh, Perkins. John Perkins, a black man who left Mississippi because of the, uh, because of the quite literally persecution he experienced but would go back to the Deep South to start Christian Community Development Associates with the courage he faced daily. I believe he lost, he, I, I believe he lost a brother, family members that were killed, and yet he chose to go back, go back to the Deep South and daily live courageously. Last quote, and this is my favorite. Friends, courage is the heart of all virtues. I think this is very, very true. Courage is the heart of all virtues. Anything good that you want to do, don't think that we can just, you know, I'll be nice today to my boss or to my employer or my employee. You know, it takes courage to do that. Or... I'll make an ethical choice at work today. I'll just do it. Do you know it takes courage to do that? I'll face down, struggle with my assignments at school. Do you know it takes courage to get up and to work hard? I'll take care of my family. It takes courage to stand up and to teach the right way to your children. Every good thing we do, I believe, is preceded by courage. It takes courage to do the right thing. And so, maybe you feel like Bob. You're sitting there typing. You don't know why you're doing what you're doing. And you're looking for the courage. I want to invite you to close your eyes. Monday's coming. Sorry. Do you need courage? As you're contemplating your work, you've already been looking upstream. You're in a place now where you see the signs. Do you need courage to do the right thing? If I could just speak out, Father's, don't you need the courage to be there for your kids? 
I know what it's like at the end of the day. I just want to veg rather than give to my family. But don't you know it takes courage to be there for them? Do you need courage to face your boss this week? Do you need courage to humble yourself and to do the right thing? I'm going to give you about 30 seconds of empty space to respond how you will. God, here in this company, I see brave men, women, brave people who are trying to do the right thing. Lord Jesus, we come before you now and we know that the one who did the most courageous thing is you. You had a job to do. You faced down that old rugged cross. You didn't want to do it. You didn't want to do it. But you showed us the way. We have little crosses compared to yours, Lord. Very little. But they're real. They're there. And Jesus, we're clinging to you today, hour by hour. And we ask for your power and your help. And so give us a strength today, we pray, we ask. May these words encourage and lift us up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org That's www.wovenchurch.org